This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Christopher Miller. He's a journalist with Radio Free Europe and he's been covering the war in East Ukraine since the very start. In fact, he actually lived in the Donbass region where the war currently is before the war even broke out. He'll be giving us some updates on the state of the war in East Ukraine. It's a conflict that many people seem to have forgotten is still going on. It is, however, the biggest ongoing conflict in Europe. Many young men are dying on the front lines every single week. So Christopher Miller is going to give us an insight into what is carrying this war on and what might happen in the future. If you want more from the podcast, go to patreon.com slash popular front. You can support us there, get bonus episodes, join the discord, all sorts of stuff. This episode is sponsored by DefensePost.com. What the hell is going on in Ukraine, I guess? Because, you know, as we both know, the war is not over. The ceasefire isn't holding yet. You never see anything about it in the news. What is going on? Yeah, well, you know, it's more than four years now since this this war began, and it's still very much an active conflict. Um, You know, for for people who actually follow, you know, pretty closely... uh, they will have heard this this line that's now being used by uh, uh, President Petro Poroshenko and the Ukrainian government, as well as the U.S. envoy uh, to the Ukraine conflict, Kurt Volker, that the, the the war is not a frozen conflict; it's a hot war. Uh, you know, as as much as that is a line, it's it's true. You know, it's it's still very much um, a, an active conflict uh, with a static front line, but there's still shooting. All day, every day, um, you know, everything from small arms to heavy weapons are still being used. Not necessarily to the extent that they were used in the first uh, year and a half of the conflict, when things were really heavy and really bad and people were dying in large numbers on a daily basis, you know, but it's still happening. And, you know, I think on average, one Ukrainian soldier dies every two or three days. And Sometimes we see flashes where four, six, uh, eight are killed in a couple day or like a 48 hour period. And, you know, casualties are still in the double digits on a weekly basis. Uh, civilians are also taking a toll. You know, it's, it's not like this is happening in a deserted area. Eastern Ukraine is a heavily populated uh, place. And the, the region that is considered to be the active war zone is about the same size as the, the U.S. state of Maryland. Uh, and there's, there's 4 million people that live across it. And I think around 400,000 that live right up against on either side of the front line. So you can see that like, you know, with, with, with the way that the war is going now, which is more or less you know, simmering because it's still happening, just not with the same intensity, like I said before, as it, as it previously would, you know, was, um, you know, it's still, it's still go ongoing. It's still affecting the lives of, of, uh, you know, civilians who are caught in the crossfire or live just, just out of range, but are affected nonetheless, because they have to cross to and from this contact line or this, this conflict line, um, you know, for medical services, for pensions, for, um, you know, to, just to see family, friends, whatever. Um, yeah, you know, I, and I think it's, you mentioned, you mentioned that it's not, it's not being, it's not being covered. And I think, 
you know, to, to the extent that it had been covered before, certainly it's, it's not getting that same attention, right? But I think the reason is because not a lot has changed on the ground in the last two years. And, you know, it's a war of attrition. And, and the, 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 the men and women that are fighting on the front lines are, are just wearing each other down. And a lot of the people who followed the conflict intensely at the start have also kind of been worn down because not a lot has happened, right? Yeah, I remember, I think the last time I was in Avdivka, like over a year ago now, this guy was like, oh, we took, th- we took this amount of ground. And he was talking about this trench that they took from the separatists. And it was like three or four meters, honestly. It was nothing, you know, and they, they kind of considered this as this like kind of, you know, oh, we're pushing forward now. And I just thought, not really, you know what I mean? It's all pretty static. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's, no, so that, that is actually still happening, which might be, might be one of the, one of the most interesting things that is still um, kind of uh, happening. Uh, and, and that is this, this um, uh, creeping advance or creeping offensive on the Ukrainian side. Um, now, you know, I, I get flack for even using that term, but it's actually a term that was first used by Ukrainian media, not myself. But uh, like you said, you know, in, in Avdiivka, uh, when these guys were creeping, you know, kind of forward meter by meter, um, you know, they, that's, that is something that's been going, uh, going on um, since, let's see, December 2016, uh, when the military kind of uh, put, put forward this idea that it would uh, move ahead, you know, meter by meter or kilometer by kilometer to try to take st- more strategic positions. Um, you know, what, what they said, the positions they said would be to allow them a better defense should Russia um, launch an all-out uh, invasion. But really what it is, is this, this idea and policy of retaking retaking ground without violating the Minsk peace deal agreements. So just this week, there was another update from uh, one of uh, the Ukrainian military's top commanders who said that they've taken a total of about, I think, 15 square kilometers of territory in the gray zone, which is that buffer area, um, not necessarily a no man's land because civilians still live there, but that area between the two sides front lines. And so the Ukrainians have continued to do this since December 2016, and they're taking little, you know, little territories here and there around uh, where where Debaltseva is located, you know, which was that, you know, the, one of the most um, intense battles of the conflict in, in winter 2015. Um, you know, pushing pushing there and pushing toward Gorlovka nearby, which are you know is another another strategic another strategic city. So, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the really interesting things that not a lot of people are paying attention to because it's, it's you know, it's not, it's not very sexy and they're not taking a lot of territory, um, but, but it, is, it is still happening. And actually, one of the other, if, if you want me to keep on, you know, talking about this, I don't know how, how into the weeds you want to get, but I think it's really, I think it's really interesting um, to, 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 to kind of follow what Ukraine is doing because they're going in and they're, they're, quote, retaking cities or liberating towns by doing this. But uh, what what they're doing in some cases is just moving into a town that already 
is under the control of the government, even if it is in the in, in the technical gray zone or kind of this buffer zone. They're getting they're getting aid from the government. Volunteers are still reaching them. Humanitarian aid is still reaching them. Uh, they still have communication with the central government in Kiev and the regional government and. The, the Ukrainian military will move in and raise a flag over a building and say, you know, hey, we, we liberated this, this town. And villagers will say, we were never under anybody's occupation. We've been, we've been more or less free and unoccupied here, and now you're making us targets because you're moving in and positioning weaponry near schools or near parks or, you know, more generally in just, you know, populated areas. Um, now the other side is doing that too. So you know, I, I get I get pounced on by uh, you know Kiev Kiev supporters and Ukrainians for for saying this, but the other side is doing this too. There there is also the same thing happening on the part of of you know the Russia backed uh, separatists and the DNR and LNR. So both sides are doing this. It's just that Ukraine is doing it to a, to a, a slightly greater extent than than the other side is. And why are they doing that? Is it just for show, just to be like, look, we took some ground in the media or, or what? Like, it seems like an odd tactic. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an odd tactic. I mean, I think, I think it has a lot of propaganda, propaganda value. Uh, you know, it's not only uh, folks in the West um, or, or outside of Ukraine, anywhere in the world, who have lost interest in the conflict. Ukrainians also, um, you know, polls show, are, um, are, are interested in the conflict, but they're not getting it from... They're not getting information about it from their media. Um, so there was this really interesting study, just to back up a little bit here and provide a little bit of context. Like in, I think it was in January or February, one of the um, uh, polling uh, organizations in Kiev found that of the top six television stations, only 2% of all news programming was focused on the conflict. And and so it's not it's not being talked about in Ukrainian society either. Even though polls show Ukrainians would like to know more about it, and that it's the most important issue that needs to be settled, right? Um, and, and so you know that's I, I find that to be a, a really really interesting thing. But I think this um, you know this campaign is one of the few things that is getting media coverage, and it's because Ukraine kind of needs a win. Right, like this, this conflict has no end in sight. Um, parliamentary and presidential elections are coming up in 2019. Uh, President Poroshenko is deeply unpopular. His government is deeply unpopular, and the one area where he does kind of shine, or at least he he does have a, a greater level of, of, of popularity, is. Uh, in the realm of the military, because he's seen as having put millions and millions of dollars into the military and really kind of, you know, raising it from the grave. Before before this war, I mean, it was it was nothing. It had been completely disassembled. Money had been uh, reallocated elsewhere. Um, you know, the military was a shell of its former self. It it it, uh, it it was essentially nothing. Like since the fall of the Soviet Union to about 2014, and then. You know, it, it had to uh, act and, and get built up. And, and Poroshenko, you know, to his credit, has managed to do that. But, you know, the war is controversial. Um, everything outside of the military um, is still seen as being very corrupt. And Poroshenko is not very popular. But when it comes to the military, it is. And if the military keeps showing progress and showing that it's, it's strong, that it can rebuff any kind of Russian attack... 
you know, uh, that's, that's going to be something that, that, um, you know, keeps, keeps a sort of, uh, positivity focused on, on, on Poroshenko and his government. And I think that's, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest part of it because I've been to some of these places where they've retaken ground, the military that is, and, you know, their argument the, the military's argument is that these are strategic points, you know, maybe, maybe a, a hilltop, um, you know, with a better view or um, maybe an area that they needed to take before the other side did because it would, be benef- it would have been advantageous for, for, for uh, Russian-backed uh, forces to hold that um, and, um, you know, a good place to launch an assault from. Um, and, you know, I've been to these places and, and I, you know, I'm not a military expert, but I just don't see it. And it's in some cases so little ground, like you were saying, you know, you, they, they had moved forward maybe three or four meters. I mean, I, that, I don't know if that's, if, you know, if, if, if that's hyperbole and you're, you're, you're not, maybe it was a little bit more ground, but it really is like very, a very little piece of, of space in some cases. And I just don't see the value in that, especially given that it costs. Uh, I mean, it, it costs soldiers' lives in in some cases, right? If you remember the last time they did this in um, this this little town of um, oh, what is it, uh, Chiri, uh, near Gorlovka, it was. Um, I, I think it cost three or four soldiers' lives, uh, a hell of a lot of ammunition. Um, even more were wounded, and I believe there were uh, civilian casualties as well, right? So it doesn't make a lot of sense to be doing this. Um, so I, I, think, I think they must feel as though they're, they're, they're kind of in desperate, um, in desperate need of a, of a PR win. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't literally mean for me. It was maybe 40, I don't know, or 60. But the, the feeling I got was from this guy I remember he was telling me and he showed me this like horrific video where they'd filmed in the trench where they'd shot some DNR guy in the head and stuff and the feeling I got I just thought this guy is so they're so angry you know they're on the front no one cares like like you said I remember one soldier said to me why did you even bother coming here like as a joke you know and I said oh well people you know in the rest of Europe don't realize the war is still going on and he said, mate, people in Kiev don't realize the war is still going on, you know. So I, I kind of got this feeling they're so angry that, I mean, I don't know, but I felt as if maybe these little creeping advances just come out of, I don't know, a few shots come over and they go, right, fuck it, let's go. You know what I mean? And they just, out of the desperation, I don't know. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think certainly part of it, part of it is, uh, you know, in my interviews with, with soldiers when they were doing this in an area near Debaltseva, what was called the Svetladarsk Bulge, Oh, in, yeah. in winter 2016, which I think was right before you went to Avdeevka, um, uh, they had really started to push uh, in, in this one area. And the soldiers that I had spoken to and their commanders were, I think, the most honest I've ever heard uh, soldiers be in this, in this conflict. And they said, you know, look, we've got new guys that have no war experience. They weren't here in 2014. They weren't here in 2015 in the Baltimore when it's hot and heavy. They've got to get some practical experience. This helps with that. And then, you know, another, uh, another, another commander saying as well that, you know, yeah, we, we've, got, we've got guys that need practical experience. But also, like, you know, we've got to keep this, we've got to try to keep this conflict in the public eye. So like you were saying, right, like there's people in Kiev who 
you know, I've kind of forgotten about this. Well, these things do help with that, right? It gives that PR win that I was saying before, but also kind of helps put the uh, the conflict back in back into uh, the public eye. Um, and and I think you know another 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 um, aspect of that uh, was morale. Like soldiers' morale is really really low right now, right? Um, not a lot is happening. The front line is static. You got a lot of guys who really would like, even even if it cost you know thousands of lives, would like to take offensive action. Now I'm not saying that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. I'm I'm just stating you know these guys um, are bored on the front lines and in these creeping advances, you know when they are able to take even 40 meters of territory or a kilometer of territory, you know they they feel like they've done something right. They've they've helped their country. They've re- recaptured. Uh, or liberated this piece of Ukrainian land that is that is theirs, right? And it really does boost morale. But it doesn't last long. It only lasts for a, for a short period of time, which is part of the reason why I think this campaign has continued on. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Um, one thing that that reminds me of is kind of the uh, how the militias are still pushing on and what have you, even though they're not really getting paid. What is going on now with the militias? Because you've still got right sector running around. Azov seemed to have splintered into a few different groups, which are causing chaos, you know, with the uh, beating up those Romani gypsies and what have you. Over the last few years, Ukraine has, has you know, brought these militia groups and its volunteer battalions into official folds, whether it be the National Guard, the Interior Ministry, or the... Ministry of Defense. However, just like you said, there still are these uh, volunteer, freedom-fighting, um, you know, ultra-nationalist guys uh, who have decided not to um, be be taken into an official fold, and their loyalties are not to the government or any official military structure. Their loyalties are to one of a handful of um, you know, lawless commanders. And you, you're on about right sector. So, so, yeah, right sector is the best example of that, right? Dmitry Yarosh, who's, of course, one of Russia's favorite bogeymen, uh, you know, still leads this uh, Duke uh, volunteer volunteer battalion of, of right sector guys, or you know, also known as Pravi sector, and, uh, you know, and, and they number in, you know, the several the several dozens, if not, you know, a few hundred, um, and, and they're still in, in places along the front line. Um, they're, they're allowed to be there, even though they're supposed to have been brought into the fold or not fight at all. They're allowed, they're allowed to, to, to remain at certain places on the front line. They still coordinate with the official military structure to some degree, not to a, not to a great extent, but you know they get on the radio and and let uh, you know this battalion know they're going here or whatever, just so just so there's no there's no crossfire between them, right? Um, but uh, they're they're you know they're they're tacitly accepted, not explicitly accepted, because if you ask the military, they'll they'll tell you on the record officially we don't have any any guys out there fighting who aren't within uh, an, you know our official structure. But but these guys aren't, and and you know, and they don't want to be, and you know, they haven't they haven't caused too much trouble uh, in in Donbass since since um, the others were brought into these these structures. 
Uh, they kind of do their own thing. They're not, they're not heavily involved in any of uh, the, these kinds of more offensive um, uh, measures or, or these you know, s- slow kind of creeping advances that we discussed before. Uh, they kind of you know, keep to themselves and they squat in, in homes you know, close to the front line where civilians uh, have, have, have left because of, you know, because of the level of violence there. Um, you know, and, and I think, I think, you know, it's, but Kiev leaves them alone because they would probably have a bigger problem with these guys if they tried to disarm them. You know, we, we saw, we saw a couple of years ago, if you remember this like really nasty battalion called the Tornado Battalion, a bunch of those guys, a bunch of those guys were tried and convicted of really heinous crimes you know, and and they weren't they weren't tried or charged with murder because they couldn't prove it. But uh, you know, in, in my interviews with with people out in, in Donbass, including police commanders who came up with these guys, who came up uh, against these guys, you know, they said bodies were being found in uh, in the areas under their control. But these guys, when they were uh, when there was an attempt to bring them in, they had a firefight uh, and a standoff with with police, and and um, you know I think Kiev fears that this could happen also with these right sector guys and other volunteers, uh, who who number um, you know in in the hundreds, not not just in like the the couple of dozen like these tornado guys, right? This they 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 have not only firearms, but they've got. You know they've got anti-tank weapons. They've got uh, APCs and other armored armored vehicles. Uh, it would really be kind of. I mean, it would be a pretty a pretty nasty fight. And I mean, not not there would certainly be lives lost. But the also the optics to the international community and and Kiev's Western backers. You know they would see this, and it, it would be a real a re, a real disaster. Uh, for them, so they're out there. They're still operating. You know, they don't get a lot of attention. I think recently there was a group of them who kind of celebrated um, this kind of anniversary of, of 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 joining joining the ranks. One of my colleagues at the Ukrainian service for Radio Free Europe, Liv Kostek, who um, doesn't report in English, unfortunately, but sometimes we we collaborate on stories. He reports in Ukrainian and Russian for um, the uh, Ukrainian service Radio Soboda's Donbass Reality. He was out there for this kind of, um, I think it was it was uh, a swearing-in ceremony for some new volunteers and this inaug- or uh, this, this anniversary um, uh, of the sort of Duke Battalion being formed. And the photos that he shared with me showed that showed at least at least a hundred guys. So they're still out there, um, and they're still getting support from somewhere. We don't know exactly where, and that's you know that's that's the other issue. It's like who's giving them money, right? But but they're out there. Uh, in the last year, I've been following right sector channels on Telegram and what have you, and I noticed very like a high uptick in what they were doing. So, for example, they started putting on all these. Um, training camps and then all of a sudden they started bringing these videos out where they're quite well edited and before that they were just ragtag you know they were never doing stuff like that really and I've noticed within the last year I thought these guys are getting money from somewhere where they weren't before you know what I mean because there's so much things they seem to be at least trying to show that they're doing now whereas before I never really saw that yeah yeah that that is true I've noticed also like new new uniforms for example uh, you know all of that kind of stuff money the 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 money going to these groups has been 
incredibly difficult to track. You know, we, we have a, some sense of where they might get it. You know, local businessmen with, with interests in, in specific areas in Donbass, right? They don't want their business lost to the, you know, the, whether it be the separatists or, or Russia or um, uh, what have you. Uh, there are oligarchs um, who are, you know, also backing these groups that backed some of them in the beginning, right? People like Igor Kolomoisky, um, you know, who, who backed uh, the Dnipro and the Donbass battalions, uh, you know, early in the conflict. But, you know, as far as, as, far as right sector is concerned, I, you know, I, I haven't, I, I can't say that I've really been able to find, you know, with, to, a, to a, a great degree of certainty who specifically is funding them. But, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I've, I've been kind of hoping that Ukrainian journalists would dig into. But I haven't seen, you know, a very comprehensive report done that looks at the financing of them. Uh, you know, and, and there's, there's also questions about the financing of the Azov Battalion, especially now that it's getting so much attention uh, because it's formed a political party, uh, the group has been behind several of these attacks on Roma camps that, that you also mentioned, you know, uh, in, in recent months. And I think even more than right sector, which I think poses very little threat, actually, even though it's a favorite, you know, it's a favorite uh, boogeyman of Russia and, and of, of um, kind of anti-fascist folks uh, internationally who, who watch Ukraine and think it's crawling with fascists, which it's not. You know, right sector is this kind of like favorite uh, group to target. But they, they're, I think, you know, less of a threat um, militarily and, and politically than Azov is, just because Azov has not only tacit support from, from powerful people in government, it has explicit support from them, right, and, and possibly financial support from them. Um, it gets, it, uh, Azov's um, youth, youth group wings get, get government money, they get grants to put on patriotic education camps, um, you know, that sort of thing. And so I think they, they pose much more of a threat and, and are probably more interesting of a group to, to look at, um, uh, you know, under a microscope. Yeah, and I think for anyone that doesn't realise why that's such a threat, we should point out that Azov is quite literally a far-right battalion running around with a column of tanks. They have children's summer camps where they train kids. You know, I've been there basically teaching them how to be soldiers. Now, like you said, this idea that the Ukraine war was a fascist junta is just absolute nonsense. However, like... As of, I feel it's getting a bit out of control, you know, because how are the government going to stop them? You know, you did that great piece about their little, um, their, their kind of militia roaming around Kiev now. It's just madness. Yeah, well, and they, they, they're able to do it because they have, this, they have support from the interior minister, Arsenovakov, and his, his ministry, and of course the police forces, um, who, who they do clash with sometimes. Um, these these new street groups uh, that are part of the Azov organization, you know, they do clash with with uh, patrol police, for example, uh, from time to time. But ultimately, you know, they have the support of very powerful people in government, and you know, they they are believed to have really been kind of you know brought into the fold to handle the sort of dirty work that the Interior Ministry doesn't want to do itself, and. That seems to be their main task uh, in terms of um, what they do on the street. But they're also creating a very uh, influential political, uh, political organization. So, you know, if you look at the polls, um, they're not popular nationally. 
right? And if you remember from 2014 in parliamentary and presidential elections, all far-right political parties did terribly. Uh, some not even garnering, um, you know, two percent of of the vote, and and really none of them got enough um, in in uh, uh, parliamentary elections for the party to enter parliament. Some of the individual uh, leaders made it on um, uh, in single single mandate districts, but not not um, on on their party lists didn't didn't make it, um, and so you know nationally support for them is very very low. However. We're seeing the growth of these groups now um, in in uh, Kiev specifically, um, and, and they're 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 being they're being grown not not as like this political force but as this kind of like street muscle, and you know one of their leaders is uh, Andrei Belitsky, who is a former commander out in Donbas, who is is in parliament and. Whose influence is uh, has has grown because of his ties to powerful people uh, in in parliament and 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 the government, um, and I, they're they're going to be a really interesting group to watch over the next year because uh, as as they've not really uh, alone garnered much um, support, they're consolidating um, all of these all these far right groups. Are consolidating and they're going to form one one party. And that's the idea to put forth one candidate in presidential elections next year and one one party for parliament next year, in hopes of getting getting or growing growing their power and influence. And it's you know it's 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 possible that that uh, they could achieve this, just given the fact that they are supported by by those people that I mentioned and there's really no sign that the government wants to crack down on on them you know they're they're beating up uh, minorities with impunity uh, they're receiving government money to educate Ukraine's youth uh, it's certainly something that is that has you know it's is of great concern to uh, Ukraine observers um, you know who work for humanitarian organizations or journalists like myself um, and and you know, I think that there was a lot of attention on them in recent months because of these attacks. But it, the attention only comes when there are these attacks. When you know more needs to be done, I think, to shine a light on 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 these guys. Um, even when even when there isn't some kind of hope, uh, high high profile piece of news. I remember when um when I was doing that summer camp thing, you know, and they were trying to pass it off. They said we're not Nazis, we don't like Hitler, we're just ultra nationalists. Which, you know, in, in the context of war and what, the, what has happened to their country, you can say like, oh, okay, like whatever, do your thing. But obviously, I, you know, obviously that's not true with Azov. But what we did, we found all of their social media accounts and every single one of the instructors, bar one, had swastikas, Heil Hitler, you know, doing Sieg Heil. It, it was crazy, man. You know, it was, it was sad to see, really, you know, because they are very well organized. Well, and, you know, another reason why they aren't, they aren't cracked down on by police and the authorities because a lot of these guys are hailed as heroes, like Bilecki and the guys who were a part of the Azov Battalion at the very start. You know, they get a lot of um, they get a lot of uh, um, support and and they've got a lot of street cred because they were a part of the original group that helped repel uh, you know Russian back attacks in Mariupol and other parts up and down the front line in eastern Ukraine. And you know, to their to to their credit, they uh, they did manage um, you know to 
hold their ground or even or even retake some in in certain areas. Now, I mean, I think I think you can do both things at the same time. You can say, "Hey, they did a good job of 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 doing this many uh, uh, you know three years ago, four years ago." But also, we need to keep an eye on them and keep them in check because there are guys, like you said, who walk around and are openly neo-Nazi and are openly fascist. Uh, you know, and uh, unfortunately, right now there's this attitude in Ukraine where you know we put aside all of the bad shit um, and you know and 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 hold up hold hold these people up um, because of some of the the good stuff that they did. Right, and I think you can you can you can do and say both. Right, you can say that they did a good job once upon a time, uh, but but um, you know you need to you need to keep people with the with this kind of ideology in check. Right, um, you don't want this this kind these kind of people actually actually controlling Kiev um, and, and essentially you know uh, bringing bringing uh, Russia's propaganda to this like you know kind of point of truth. An old lady once. Um in the in the Donbass really summed it up for me once she said look I don't like their ideology but those guys stopped my house being shelled by the Russian separatists so they're all right with me you know and I think like you said you can't just pretend like oh well because they're fascist they're no good no they did a good job on the front line like it's true and I think we should mention as well like Azov is a very small part of the uh, you know of the combatants fighting at the moment yeah, absolutely. No, many many of the Azov guys are not on the front. They've they've moved to the streets of Kiev. Uh, you know, there there are some some who were part of the Azov battalion or part of uh, right sector or other other kind of far right organizations who are now who who did who did actually agree to be brought into the fold and were spread across uh, you know several different. Uh, battalions on the front. So even even Donbass battalion, if you remember them from the very beginning, you know they fractured into two different groups. One is a one one is under the um, control of the Ministry of Defense, and uh, they um, are are commanded by uh, Vyacheslav Vlasenko, I believe, still, and another and another commander, and they're still out on the front line, and they handle heavy weapons. Um, there are many of them. They're very skilled and very disciplined. Then there is this other uh, group controlled by Simon Semenchenko, who was the original commander of, of the first Donbass battalion. But they've moved to like Parliament and the streets, and they're pretty gritty. And they were supporters of Mikhail Saakashvili, and they were a part of this like more recent tent camp that, if you remember, last last winter popped up uh, and protested against Poroshenko, and were were very anti-government. We shouldn't waste too many time too too much time on on these groups. Uh, but you know, I think. I think um, Azov is the one to watch. Right sector is out is out in the east still, but not doing too much, um, you know. But but in terms of reigning in Azov, I, I really think that's that's the biggest um, issue uh, that that Kiev has with doing so is that a lot of these guys are seen by the Ukrainian public as being heroes, and they don't want to they don't want to look uh, they don't want to come off uh, as looking like they're cracking down on guys that that uh, were heroic, right? Uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't. Like they should. They re- these guys need to be reined in, you know, for the sake of Ukraine's reputation and and rule of law. And if Ukraine really does want to show itself as as you know moving westward and becoming more European, certainly these guys have no place, you know, in in Ukraine's future, but at least in its government. Um, um, but uh, you know, it's it's a tough thing for the government to do. It's not a popular thing. And 
What is going on in the Donbass now? What's happening in the separatist regions, I should say? Like, what is happening with the DNR and what's going on in the LNR? Like, Luhansk, I haven't heard anything come from there for months. Oh, man, it's really hard to get uh, to get information from, from Lugansk and Donetsk these days. And journalists have been more or less banned from, from entering or reporting there since the end of 2015. Uh, so I, it's been the end, it was it was late 2015, the last time I was there, and I just continue to get denied access, just like many of our colleagues do. But we have some we have some reports that do you know filter out. Um, there's obviously a lot of you know Lugansk and Donetsk propaganda, and even Russian state media that is able to uh, produce stuff from there. So if you kind of read between the lines, you get a, a you know. A, a, a little bit of a sense of what's going on, but the you know, and I've got my own contacts and sources that I have over there who I still talk to, you know, fairly regularly. But we can't publish them by name or really base any report on on what they say, just because they would it would put them in danger. But what I what I hear and what I what I what I've come to know from from these sources is that things are pretty chaotic uh, politically uh, over there. Um, you know, they've got. Um, uh, a new leader in Lugansk um, as of last year, right? There was this, there was this coup uh, that pushed out Igor Plotnitsky, the, the guy who, who ran the Lugansk People's Republic uh, for, for much of the, uh, its, its early existence. And uh, then you've got uh, Alexander Zaharchenko still leading the Donetsk People's Republic, but, you know, he's, he has and is still been a figure a figurehead only really you know he's not an intelligent man uh he is not somebody that russia likes um uh, uh making public appearances or speaking uh on behalf of uh the the dnr um recently they've been trying to uh put denis pushilin who's kind of the the number two and you know he prefers a suit to uh, you know Zaharchenko's uh, military garb, and he's been doing the kind of official rounds in Moscow, flying to Crimea to meet with their um, you know kind of occupation authority leaders down there, Sergei Oksanov in, in particular. And what I've what I've heard from my sources is that you know if when there are elections in Donetsk, there's there's going to be some kind of attempt to muscle Alexander Zaharchenko out and. Uh, put put forward Denis Pushilin as um, the the uh, preferred leader of Donetsk, but they've got to do that with some grace. They can't look like they're like they're actually forcing Zaharchenko out. They've they've got to make it look like he's resigning or like he's had his tenure and now he's going to go, uh, you know, relax in his um, seized uh, the, or the, the the home that he seized from from a Ukrainian family several years ago or whatever. You know, or just put him into retirement or something. But also, there were reports recently that he had either been wounded again, or that his old wound had flared up and he was having uh, complications with it. So that also could be a reason to to kind of push him aside. So politically, it's it's pretty turbulent right now. Um, a lot of people in the Donetsk and Lugansk occupied. Uh, areas um, are are coming to Ukraine to get their pensions, to see family, to seek medical treatment. Um, you know, so there's still this flow of people back and forth, and and you know we hear 
stories from those people who come who come across the front line. You know, they meet with journalists, they meet with uh, doctors, they meet with their friends and family, and so you know we get this information. You know, not third hand or second hand, but sometimes first hand. You know, um, just by by meeting some of them at the the checkpoints as they cross through, or at hospitals when they're seeking care, that sort of thing. So. Um, you know what, and what they part of what they say. If you want to move away from politics and you know hear a little bit about life there, is that you know uh, the, in those areas the Ukrainian grivna, the currency there, has you know uh, all but vanished, and now it's it's the Russian ruble that's being used. Food, they say, is very expensive. Um, the choices are very, very, very few. A lot of it comes from uh, Russia, of course. So you know, it's no longer Ukrainian beer on the shelves. It's it's uh, Russian beer. Um, you know, a lot of the the, the meat products and and uh, dairy products. You know, they come from Russia, uh, mostly the Rostov region, which which butts up against uh, the Ukrainian border there. Uh, you know, people still live very much in fear. There's a curfew in place still. So even though you know the conflict is nowhere near the the level of intensity that it was. There's still a there's still a uh, curfew in place, and and while that curfew is uh, either ten or eleven p.m., uh, it's you know p- the streets are empty by six p.m. seven p.m. because people want to make sure that they get home in time, um, you know before before it gets dark, uh, because after really after dusk you know people people can disappear and the you know police force. Of, of the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics will just round up whoever they feel like it, take them in for an interrogation, you know, accuse them of, of, of being a spy or spotter for the Ukrainian military, uh, you know, and, and, and they'll disappear for a day or a week or sometimes, sometimes you know, for a much longer period of time. Uh, so there's still this, this kind of iron-fisted rule there. And certainly no no jobs like you know there's there you, you've got you've got um, you know some basic some basic uh, shops that are open and a few of the mines and factories that are open but for um, you know for many uh, there's there's no work so it's a, it's a pretty dire uh, and and depressing situation right now yeah I I remember when I was there man I just came away with this feeling like you just said this iron fisted rule. And it, it really pisses me off when you hear these kind of tankies or these leftists who are saying, oh, yeah, go and live in, you know, the DNR, this kind of socialist haven. It's not. It's a it's a hellhole. You know, it's like this totalitarian hellhole. It's absolutely disgusting. So it, it doesn't surprise me to hear that it's getting worse. You know, I, I lived I lived in Donetsk before the war, you know, for, for two full years before the conflict uh, broke out, and I mean, it was a great city. Um, you know, it, it it had the Donbass Arena. You know, uh, uh, one of the nicest, most expensive football stadiums um, to have been built in recent time. Right, uh, the streets were clean, and there was there there were traffic jams. Um, you know, there were there were swanky restaurants, concerts. Um, you know, not only Russian stars but like European stars would come over. There was even an underground kind of uh, gay scene. Um, you know, there you could go to a gay club if you wanted to. Um, there were, uh, I mean, people all over. Like the you know the parks were full of people. Um, there were, there were all kinds of things happening, and it was it was 
while, while it was built up on stolen money, because it was obviously the, the, the home of Viktor Yanukovych, Ukraine's former president, you know, who was ousted from the, the Maidan revolution. You know, it was, it was his kind of way of building um, his own, his, building up his own home. Right. And and it did get nicer. And it was it was a nice place, like not only regionally, but like nationally. It was it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty fun place. There were like there were opportunities there. There were things to do for 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 local people uh, more than than ever before. And then, of course, this war started and everything went to hell and half the population fled. The streets are more or less more or less empty. Uh, you know, you'll never find a traffic jam there unless it's a, a convoy of of uh, armored vehicles and uh, military trucks, right? Like that's that's your traffic jam these days. And instead of um, going to university or having any shot at a future, uh, young folks, you know, choose to either flee to government-controlled Ukraine or to Russia or you know, join, join the ranks of some, you know, slapdash kind of military, uh, for pennies, uh, each month. It's, it's, it's pretty grim. With, in relation to that, like you said, you know, young lads going and joining the militias in the DNR. Um, I wanted to ask you what your opinion is on what happened to Givi and Motorola, the, um, you know, the DNR commanders who died in pretty suspicious circumstances in the last, what, year or so? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are several theories. Mine, mine is, in a nutshell, you know, the Kremlin kind of cleaning house, getting rid of the the most outspoken of of the of the group of uh, separatist fighters or insurgents there, especially those who kind of had reached this sort of cult status. And were known for their brutality, right? You know, Motorola and Givi were brutal. I mean, that doesn't even begin to really describe them. I mean, I, I I saw some of the things that they did in person, and you know, I I know this isn't a family show, but it's still not uh, uh, or podcast, but it's still not really the place I think to, to go into like the gruesomeness of, of, of the crimes they committed and that I, that I saw them commit. But I, I think I think really it was. Um, I think it was the you know probably or at least most likely to be some kind of uh, you know Russian special force or or a, a sort of Russian trained or backed kind of special unit that uh, was was taking these guys out um, you know in in hopes that at some point when Russia and Ukraine are actually uh, ready to sit down and find a settlement to this thing that there would be people in place. Who who would uh, be willing to negotiate on that side, and not uh, not these kinds of guys like Givian Motorola who would uh, almost certainly protest that and 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 take up arms uh, anyway uh, to fight against any kind of deal, right? Yeah, they they would definitely they would just start going wild, right? I mean, they had all the men, they had all the weapons as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was Motorola who had a wedding in the middle of the city, and you know, instead of driving away in a limousine, they they drove away on an uh, armored personnel carrier. Uh, you know, they had they had anything they wanted uh, at their disposal. I, the, when I was there, um, the the fixer I was working with, she told me this amazing story that. Well, she she said she said I was at the swimming pool yesterday, and Motorola was there in his swimming trunks with his AK, just wandering around the swimming pool. Like, gives you an idea what kind of guy he was, you know. 
Yeah, that was, I mean, that's, those kinds of scenes were, are, were and are, you know, I mean, normal there. Uh, I, I was, I, I basically lived in the Ramada, like many journalists did for months on end in 2014 through, you know, 2015 uh, in Donetsk. And it was just this, the most bizarre place to be and the, 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 the strangest mix of people because you would have the hotel staff, of course, which were locals and they went out of their way to be polite and, and smiling and, and nice even though they lived in a war zone and they still had to work behind a desk counter and serve people food. And then you had journalists who were coming in from all over the place. Uh, you had um, uh, armed, armed men who would sit down and drink their espresso or order uh, a plate of pasta with, you know, while, while they had their AK over their lap, you know? And then, like, between, between dinner and dessert, they would, they would, you know, they'd clean their rifle. And then sitting at the bar would be some, you know, leggy, blonde prostitute, you know, eyeing them. And then they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd walk away for an hour or whatever or come back and then sit down and they'd come right up to us journalists and, uh, you know, ask for a lighter and we'd have a conversation and they would tell us how their day was. It was absolutely insane. You know, it, it's, 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 the, it's the hotels, it's the restaurants, the swimming pool. Like, you know, I mean, these guys, these guys really had nothing to live for before the war. And now they're really just living it up. You know, they carry their guns around not only, not only for protection, but really it's kind of their, it's, so, it's sort of this like badge of honor, Right. Um, before it was uh, in the territory, you know, miners were kind of like the local heroes. And now, not for not for most of the population, because you know a lot of the population still doesn't support this war or any side really. But for for a lot of people, you know, these soldiers are now they're kind of local heroes. Um, and uh, you know, they they walk around with their guns whether or not they need them. They walk around in their uniforms, you know. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's this it's this. Um, sign that they're that they're worth something i think i think that's interesting it's a real mess um what do you think we'll, we'll finish it now but i just wanted to know what do you think is going to happen you know in the next year in the next you know i don't know whatever six months out there because a lot of people are kind of saying oh it's gonna you know the donbass is going to become the new transnistria you know this kind of forgotten dormant but not dormant conflict what do you think will happen donbass won't become transnistria at least not anytime soon because the fighting's still ongoing and you know it's not i don't think it's going to go the way of any any frozen conflict at least there is the possibility that that could happen but not for a long period of time there's still too many people who want to actually fight and there is still very much a, a an active war going on in terms of peace the, that prospect is is a long ways off uh, nothing, nothing to that effect will happen uh, in the next um, six to eight months, just because we've got um, presidential elections in Ukraine coming up in March. So Ukraine, Poroshenko can't sit down with Russia. He can't, he can't make any deal right now because any deal would certainly involve concessions, and he can't be, he can't look weak to a Ukrainian public who already doesn't approve of him. So nothing, nothing will happen. Uh, and unless, you know, unless Putin one day decides he wants to completely pull out, I mean, the, you know, the war could end if, if, if that's, if, you know, if, if he wanted to, but that's not going to happen. What, what, what likely would happen is, you know, at some point in the future, if Putin sits down with Poroshenko, there would be some kind of deal made and, 
you know, it, there would have to be concessions on both sides. But nothing's going to happen in the next six to eight months because of the presidential election. Putin, Poroshenko can't afford it. Putin wants to see who's going to become the next president because it's it's possible that he could find someone who's more amenable to to his offers when it comes to peace, right? Uh, Yulia Tymoshenko's, for example, doing very well in the polls, and she's somebody who he has done business with uh, in the past. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's... You know, the future is grim for Donbass, um, and it's kind of this area where, you know, nobody nobody really wants Donbass. Like, Ukraine doesn't want it because it sees a lot of the... It, it views the people who live under the control of, of Russia-backed separatists as traitors and separatists themselves. And Russia doesn't want Donbass because it's too costly. And it would also bring with it just too many, too many problems, uh, especially given, given the, the amount of weapons that are there and the proliferation of them, right? It wanted Crimea because it had historical ties to it, whereas you know, Donbass doesn't have the same, the same kind of thing. It doesn't mean the same thing for Russians. So it's these two sides fighting this war of attrition over a region that nobody wants. Meanwhile, young men dying, you know, every other week or whatever. A real shame, real shame. That's brilliant, mate. And where can people, you know, follow your work and keep up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, uh, right now uh, on Radio Free Europe, Radio uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website, my work is up on there. Uh, I do some freelance from time to time for others, and of course on Twitter at Christopher JM uh, is where I put out quite a bit of stuff, um, including things that don't make it into print. Excellent. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks, man. It was good. It was good chatting. You know, I can I can talk about Ukraine forever. That was Christopher Miller talking about the state of the seemingly forgotten war in East Ukraine, specifically speaking about the problems that the country might have with the militias in the future and also the lack of news coming out of the Donbass really in the uh, separatist LNR and DNR regions. This episode was sponsored by DefensePost.com. I did a little interview with them the other day, actually. You can have a look on there if you want. It's all about Popular Front, why I started it, that sort of thing. I read it back and I thought, oh, I sound like a bit of an arse here, but I don't know. See what you think. It might be all right. Also, as usual, if you want bonus content, bonus episodes, video stuff, merchandise, all sorts, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. For the $10 a month tier, I have now started a Discord server where basically everybody can talk about all things Popular Front. We've got all different sorts of things uh, going on in there. It's actually quite interesting. So if you want to be a part of that, have a look, patreon.com slash popularfront. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow me on Twitter, that's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-I-H-A-N. Also, you can follow the Popular Front Twitter, I post stuff on there now and then, it's Popular Front C-O, so at Popular Front C-O, uh, just like the website, which is popularfront.co for all the episodes, any updates, that sort of thing. Also, we have an Instagram account now, so you can see some of the various video work we're doing at the moment. Like I said, we're trying to do a documentary, and we're nearly there. We nearly finished it off. So that is Instagram.com slash popular.front. Thank you very much to the $30 Patreon members, because without you lot, I definitely wouldn't be able to do this every week. They are Ryan Sandercock, Stephen R.D. Henderson, Cole Gannon, Joel Tambusi, LH, Aliame Leroy, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, Teddy Kajetil, and Zachary Hinch. 
Um, also this week we got a anonymous donation basically some guy just sent me some money to keep the podcast going and just said I like what you're doing please keep it going whatever thank you very much to that anonymous donor if you want to do that it's paypal.me slash Jake Hanrahan J-A-K-E-H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N we will be very grateful for that because the podcast has cost me a bomb especially now we're trying to do some other stuff like docs and what have you but anyway it's going to keep going music in this episode the intro was by an artist called home and the outro was by son of old find his soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old